morning, everyone. You can have a seat. <clears throat> well, as Brian mentioned earlier, uh, today is the second Sunday of Lent, and during this season of Lent, um, we are doing a deep dive into the nature of sin, which I know is a bit of a downer, right? Uh, it's not a topic anyone really wants to talk about, but we kind of have to, right? Because we ask questions like, why is there so much violence in the world? Why is there so much greed? Why is there still so much racism in our world? Why do so many people in power abuse that power? And if any of us were truly honest, we could turn some of those questions inward and ask them of ourselves, right? Why is there greed in my own heart sometimes? Why am I quick to judge other people who are different than me? Why am I sometimes driven by hate? Why do I get angry so easily? Why do I sometimes say really hurtful words to people that I supposedly love? And, and this is what most religious and spiritual traditions simply call sin. So for six weeks, we're asking a few questions. Why do we sin? Uh, where does sin come from? And what exactly is sin? Now, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter called Romans. Uh, it's a famous letter. And in the first half of this letter, he discusses these three questions at length. Now, there's a whole lot more to Romans than that. And I gave some context to this letter and why he wrote it um, last week. I won't repeat that today. But I do encourage you, this is one of those series that we're in where uh, what we're talking about each week builds on each week. So if you miss the first couple of messages, you can go back and listen to those online. Or if you ever miss a week, um, they're easily available on our website or on the podcast. Uh, but one of the first ideas that Paul introduces is this, that sin is disobedience. That's a way to define sin. It is disobeying God. And particularly, it's disobeying the laws or the rules or the standards that God has set up. In fact, you might, may have heard this before, uh, but the word that we translate as sin in English, originally in Greek, uh, that word literally means missing the mark. And it's like an archery. Has anyone ever done archery? Summer camp, remember that, right? Uh, where you take a bow and arrow, right? And you're aiming at what? You're aiming at a target, you're aiming at the, the bullseye. You're aiming at the mark. But when you miss the mark altogether, you miss the target. And, and if sin is disobedience, then the mark is God's law. It's God's commands. It's God's standard. It's, it's God's rules. So missing the mark is whenever we fall short of or we miss God's standards or you disobey God's law. Now, Last week we said uh, laws and rules are important. They, they actually serve a useful function in our society. We couldn't live without rules and laws, right? Imagine trying to live in a culture with other people where there's no rules and no laws. So it makes sense that when God created us, when God created humans, Paul says he actually wrote some of those rules and laws on our hearts. And that's our conscience. That's that that sense of morality that we all have, where we know certain things are right and certain things are wrong, and no one has to give us an explicit rule for us to actually know that. It also makes sense when God created a people who would reflect who he is and would reflect what it means to be truly human, the nation of Israel. He gave them some very specific rules and laws for their culture and for their context for them to follow. 
And that was the Old Testament law that's given to Israel. And in fact, that's why there's so much focus on these laws and rules all throughout the Old Testament and the history of Israel. But when we listen to Jesus, and when we read Paul, and we read some of the other authors and writers of the New Testament, they tend to, to point out that sin is not just disobedience. It's not just breaking a, a law or a rule or falling short of some kind of standard. That sin seems to be a lot more complex than that. That there's something else going on in our hearts. And we need a better explanation for why we keep doing it. So, here's what Paul says early in this letter to his friends who are living in Rome. He says this, God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, this is a very strong statement. And in fact, not much longer, we read this last week, he says, all people are sinful and wicked. Like, we're, we're all that way. So God shows his anger at all of us because we're sinful and wicked. Now, uh, the word anger here, it means a passionate kind of anger. It's the kind of anger that you might have for someone you care very deeply about, and you see them continue to make horrible choices. And it just makes you angry for them on, uh, on the choices that they keep making. Now, um, I'm reading from the New Living Translation in this uh, series because I think it's a little bit easier to follow, especially with Paul and some of the ways that he writes. But in the original Greek, Paul literally says this in this statement. He says, God's anger is upon all wickedness and injustice or sin of people. See, God's not really angry at people. He's angry at what they do. He's not angry at you or me. He gets angry at the ways that we hurt ourselves and we hurt each other. And the big question is why? Why do we keep doing things that hurt ourselves and hurt each other? And that's what Paul wants to try to unpack. So here's what he says. He says, they, that is these people who are angry and sinful, right? They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. So it's almost like Paul's backing up now and he's trying to tell the grand story of humanity and how they got to be the way they are. And he's saying even before God revealed himself to the people of Israel and he made his laws and rules explicit to them, humans have always had an awareness that there is a God, right? We always have had this sense just by looking around at the glory of creation, the amazing world that he created, that this glorious creation somehow points to a Creator, And by looking at creation, by studying creation, we've talked about this, by marveling at creation, we can know something about the Creator. But then Paul says this, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship Him as God or even give Him thanks. So the implication is that if people know there is a God, that there is this amazing creator that created all of the world, that there is this higher power that, that made everything that we can see, 
then they would thank this God for all of that. Then they would acknowledge that. In fact, they might even worship this God as a God worthy to be worshipped because he made everything and he made us and that is worthy of worship. But Paul says people didn't do that. Something happened. They were aware of God. They believed he must exist. They knew he existed. But they didn't even acknowledge him or thank him or worship him. He goes on and says this. As a result... Their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So instead of worshiping God, Paul says people started worshiping idols. And the specific idols that Paul mentions here in his world and in his context, in the ancient world, they would have been these statues, these little uh, or big statues that people carved or they made out of wood or out of stone or some sort of uh, metal. And they would have been in people's homes or they would have been in a temple somewhere. And, And these statues often looked like people. They looked like humans. They looked like ourselves or even sometimes they looked like other kinds of creatures. But in the ancient world, these kinds of idols were common. They were everywhere. Look at what Paul says next. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. So this is really important. Paul is saying that when people made the choice to worship idols instead of worshiping God, God let them do it. He abandoned them to that desire. He handed them over to that desire. He said, if that's what you really want to do, I'm not going to stop you. Because when God made all of us, he gave us freedom. He gave us the ability to choose. He did not force anything Upon us. And if people choose to worship something or someone other than God, God says, Okay, I'm not going to stop you. And in fact, this idea is so important to Paul that he's going to repeat the same phrase several times in the next several sentences God lets us make our own choices, God lets us do whatever we want, even when it's to our detriment even when it's going to hurt us, even when it's going to create chaos in our lives, in our world, even when it's going to create train wrecks. Now, God might warn us about it. He might actually say, this is dumb. Don't do this. If you start doing this, it's going to reshape your heart. It's going to reshape your desires. It's not going to help you. It's going to hurt you. You are going to regret it. It's going to actually become a burden that you are going to have to carry if you worship this idol in your life. But ultimately, God honors our freedom and our choice. Now, when Paul is telling this story of humanity, he said that when people worshipped idols instead of God, they ended up doing vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. Now, Paul has mentioned our hearts here. He's mentioned our minds. Now he mentions our bodies. So part of what he's trying to say is this isn't something we're just thinking about or we're feeling, but we're also doing. It is holistic, this turning away from God and toward idols. 
But Paul goes out of his way, it seems like here, to specifically mention degrading things that people are doing in or with their bodies. And he's almost certainly talking about sexual practices here. Now, uh, Paul is probably writing this letter, we think, from the city of Corinth. He's living in Corinth at the time with some friends, and he's writing to his friends that are living in Rome. And in Corinth, there was a massive temple to the Greek goddess Aphrodite. And this temple is described by ancient writers, not even Christians or people of faith, but ancient writers as having a thousand prostitutes. Women who were forced into slavery, that worshipers and temple priests would engage in all kinds of sexual acts with. So Paul might have those kinds of things in mind from the ancient Roman world where worshiping these other gods and these idols at these temples and sexuality, it all sort of went together. But it's bigger than that for Paul. In fact, he's going to go on later in the letter to describe ways that people abandon God's original intent for sex and sexuality. And the larger point that Paul is trying to make is that instead of worshiping God, people begin to worship themselves. They begin to worship their own desires and they begin to worship their own bodies. Or as Paul puts it, they worshiped and served the things that God created instead of the Creator. And this is to begin to understand sin not simply as disobedience. It's bigger than that. It's broader than that. It's it's deeper than that. And it is more complex than that. What Paul is saying is this, that sin is ultimately idolatry. Now, idolatry is one of those sort of church Bible words uh, that I think we need to unpack a little bit more because when I hear the word idolatry, I think of ancient people worshiping statues, right? And I don't really know anybody in our culture that goes to temples to worship statues. Like that's just not something that any of us are really tempted with. So let me give you a different way of understanding what idolatry might mean for us. And it actually comes from this guy named Augustine. I mentioned Augustine uh, for the last couple of messages, and Augustine actually gets his ideas from Paul and from another guy named Jesus. So, uh, Augustine believed this. First, that to be human is to love. That we were made to love. That all true joy and meaning and purpose and happiness and identity in our lives is found in love. And judging by how many works of art and music and literature and poetry and film are about the pursuit of love, the experience of love, the heartbreak and loss of love, I think Augustine was probably onto something. So if to be human is to love, then that leads to this question. What do you love? Another way to ask it is, what do you desire? What are you drawn to? What do you seek out? What do you dream about and then pursue? Another way to ask it is, what do you worship? Now, we usually use the word worship, again, in religious contexts or when we're singing songs. But worship really just means, what do you give your attention to? What do you give your affections to? What do you give your allegiance to? What do you give your heart to? What do you love? 
And as humans, we can love so many things. We can love our country. Some people give their lives to fight for and defend our country. That's love. We can love our jobs. Some of us see, feel a, a deep sense of purpose or even accomplishment when we do something that seems to make a difference or some people say that that was really successful. We love that. We can love our sports teams, right? We give a lot of time and energy and money and emotion and heartbreak to our sports teams, even when they pay millions and millions of dollars for a quarterback that they might cut, right? <laughs> We can love music. We can love food, certain kinds of food. We can love the mountains. We love hobbies and outdoor activities in the mountains. We spend a lot of time and energy and money on our outdoor recreation, and usually what we spend time and energy on indicates what we love. We can love our pets. We can love our families. We can love people. Sometimes there are abstract things that we love. These are the concepts behind the actual things we love that help us understand what we truly love. We love security or safety or adventure or approval or power or influence or control or success or health. And Augustine said that all of these things are expressions of love, and they are natural. They're what it means to be a human. We love. But what Augustine came to learn, and what he came to discover, and what he came to believe after a lifetime searching for the ultimate fulfillment of love, is that it's found first and foremost in love for God. Because God first loved us. Because we are actually expressions of God's love. Because we were made in God's image. We were made to be like him, and God is love. And because all of the things that we do love in our lives were actually given to us as gifts of God's expression of love. And so we always begin there, with God's love for us and our love for him. And everything follows from that. Everything that we love finds its context within that, its ground or its source in God's love for us and our love for him. Here's how Augustine put it. He said, the greatest virtue is rightly ordered love. That our chief goal our highest good, the greatest thing we can ever seek, the greatest expression of what it means to be human, the greatest joy and fulfillment that we will ever find in life will be in rightly ordered love. It's loving God and receiving his love first and then everything else following and flowing from that. Everything else shaped by that. See, loving and desiring and enjoying other things is good, when it follows after and is shaped by and is expression of our love for God and his love for us. Which means that for Augustine, the essence of sin is disordered love. Sin for Augustine is when we love something else first. When our loves are out of order. When something replaces God. 
When, when we love the gifts more than the giver. When the way we love the gifts is not a reflection of the giver. Or as Paul said, it's when we love the things that God created more than the creator. That's what idolatry is. And it can happen with any of the things that we love. Jesus made it really simple one day. He was talking um, about money and possessions and our daily needs and our daily wants and our daily desires, the things that we tend to worry about, the things that tend to capture or consume our hearts. And basically, Jesus said, don't worry so much about those things. It's not that the things you're worried about or you're focused on are bad. It's just that you've become so focused on your needs and wants that you're missing the one who can meet your needs and wants. And then he said this, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, or Augustine would have said, order your loves rightly and he will give you everything you need. Uh, on another occasion, somebody came to Jesus and asked him, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in all of the Old Testament? And we're told the guy that asked this question was an expert in the law. All right, This was a guy who was an expert in obedience. Someone who, if you had asked him, what is the greatest good? What is our chief goal? What is the number one thing that we should pursue and do in life? This guy would have said, it is to obey the law. Right? It is to obey God's commandments. And to not obey the law is to sin. Sin is whenever you disobey God's commandments. So Jesus... What's the number one commandment? What is the number one rule and law that we need to follow? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The greatest commandment is to love God. First and foremost, before everything else, everything is grounded in this. It's what we were made to do. Is it also important to love yourself? Yeah. And should you love other people? Yes. Those are good things, but they're second. Everything flows from loving God first, who loved us first. See, if Augustine could be with us today, or if the Apostle Paul could join us today, or if Jesus could be right here with us in person today, I think every single one of them would say, yeah, sin is missing the mark. There is a target. There is a mark that we should all aim for. But the mark is not the law. The mark is love. That's the mark. That's the target. The, the mark is not a set of rules or laws or commands. The mark is love. Because we all love. It's who we are. It's what we were made to do. It's what makes us human. And when we rightly order our loves, when we love our creator and maker, the one who loved us first and made us, then all the other loves and desires will fall into place. But it is so easy to love other things first. It is so easy to love other things more. It is so 
easy for our loves to be disordered. And so here's the challenge that I want to close with today to simply have you ask a question of yourself, and it's this. What do I love? What do I love? And if that's too big or broad or hard to answer, then maybe ask it this way. What do I worry about? What do I give a lot of mental or emotional energy to? What do I give a lot of time to? What do I give a lot of my attention and focus to? What do I spend a lot of money on? And sometimes our idols, the things we love, become very destructive in our lives. And when we become aware of that, then we usually need to do something pretty drastic with those idols. That's what repentance is. But a lot of times, the things we love are good things to love in their proper order. But out of order, they're still idols. And we need to take them and hand them back to God and ask him to rightly order them in our hearts and in our lives. So what do you love? Let me pray for us. God, I pray during this season of Lent, you would help us to ask this question well. And honestly, because you gave us desires, you gave us the ability to love, you made us to be beings who worship and love. And that is so good. We want to live the way you've made us. And we want to find the joy and the purpose and the true love that you want us to experience. And so God, I pray that you would help us to just open up our lives and our hands and our hearts to you and that you would help us to love rightly and to love well. I pray this in your name. Amen.